Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the salvation that's ours in Christ. We thank you for drawing near to us, revealing your glory to us in him, and drawing us near in salvation so that we can know you as our God. And we confess and we thank you that your spiritual blessings for us are many. They're overflowing in abundance. And yet you know that our hearts can be so quick uh, to grumble and so quick to worry. And, and there are so many manifestations of a lack of contentment that can creep up on us and even overtake us. And we know that you have equipped us and you want us to know the joy of contentment. So we pray that that would be what we learned today. It would be yet another week of learning from your scriptures in the school of Christ. A learning that extends beyond just this hour, but into our week as we walk with Christ and as we walk through the things of life, even as challenging and as, uh, as tempting as it may be to fall into uh, discontentment. We pray that you would be equipping us more and more robustly for a life of satisfaction in you that gives you glory and is a great joy for us. So please help me in my teaching to be clear and truthful. Help us all to be alert and soft of heart and sharp of mind to understand and rightly be impacted by the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, welcome back to our course. So we're doing this series on contentment, the winter of Christian contentment. And uh, we are ultimately basing our study on God's revelation in Scripture. But more immediately, we're using this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan classic from the uh, 17th century. Now, no, totally, as I said before, no expectation or obligation that anyone is reading this, but I did say, hey, if you want to really get the full immersive experience, you can read the book. Just out of curiosity, is anyone trying to read along this book? Is anyone reading the book? Okay. Okay, so we got, we got Smokey as a yes and Sherry is, is intending. And that's fine. You know, it's one of those, no shame if you're not, but kudos if you are. Uh, but if you are reading, I, I'd love to hear about it and just what the experience has been like for you. Or as you read, if you're not as familiar with Puritan literature or if you find it a little difficult, I'd be glad to chat with you about, you know, if there's anything that I could help, help clarify. But uh, anyway, helpful read, as are so many other of these, of these Puritan classics. But... Um, to get the gears turning in our heads, I want us to all stop for a moment and consider one concrete occasion in our lives over the past week when contentment was challenged. And I'm saying it broadly enough that maybe you were tempted or maybe you were full-blown, gave over to discontentment. And I see some laughing. So maybe it's, it's uh, very easy to think of maybe certain, certain things that have come up this week. Um, I... Mine happened Friday. Uh, I have a very concrete thing that happened Friday that I was, I was very much uh, tempted toward disquiet. Uh, something, uh, something that I received in the mail that was, was not happy. I'll just put it that way. Uh, it's, it's, it's okay. But <laughs> uh, something that got my heart stirring in that we talked about that gracious, quiet spirit that is uh, Christian contentment. And something that, that got me very unquiet, very disquiet in my heart uh, and, and thinking all kinds of worried thoughts. So... I'll give you a moment to think about yourself. What was something this week that challenged contentment for you? And as you think about it, um, you know, what was the occasion? And if you can write notes, that would be helpful. What did you do about it? Again, maybe you gave yourself completely over to grumbling. Maybe you took it to God in prayer. Maybe something else. Maybe it's something you're still wrestling with. Or maybe you found some resolution and it's not bothering you anymore. Just some notes on that, because we're going to keep this answer in your back pocket as we go through today's material. Uh, we're going to we're going to um, get some tools regarding contentment, and then we're going to toward the end we're going to return to this, and we're going to do some application of what we learned today to this concrete scenario that that came up in your life. So two weeks ago, to begin the series, we introduced this topic and Burroughs' lengthy definition, which I've again put in your handout, uh, of Christian contentment. Can someone read it for us? This is probably now like the fifth time we've heard it, <laughs> this series, but hopefully it'll be very familiar by the time we're done. So what is, what is the definition we're working with of Christian contentment? 
sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and to, freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Thank you. So that was the definition. And then we spent that whole first lesson basically just with Burroughs unpacking the definition, unpacking all these terms and really understanding what contentment is and especially helping to avoid any misunderstandings of things that contentment isn't. Um, And then last week we began a two-part section on the mystery of contentment. And that has to do with, uh, in short, Christian contentment is often not what one would expect not what a non-believer from the outside would expect. It's a secret treasure that's really understood on the inside of walking by faith in Jesus. So uh, we looked at, do you remember, we broke into three different categories of ways that contentment is a mystery. Uh, can anyone remember what any of those were? It's okay, it was a week ago. <laughs> it's all written down somewhere in here. So, the first was paradox, and that is seemingly contradictory truths, like uh, we, uh, we add by subtracting. We, we find contentment by subtracting, not by adding. It has often to do with subtracting from our desires. Um, there's ironies, just things we would not expect. Um, and then there's also surprising experiences, which are things that you only really get when you're, when you're in the midst of it. You have to walk through it to really understand where contentment comes from, the way God supplies us. And we looked at 10 aspects of the mystery of contentment last week. And this week, we're going to continue and look at five more. So we're going to reach a total of 15. Um, and uh, these are all going to be in that third category of surprising experience. The, the gracious quietness of soul that is contentment comes to a Christian in ways that the world that does not know God just wouldn't understand, just can't understand. But there are some amazing things that we get inside kind of the, the package of our, of our covenantal union with God in Christ. We find all these resources for contentment um, that, that God has for us. So that's what we're going to look at, five more of those today. So before we get into those, are there any, any questions or, or thoughts? All right. I haven't said much yet, so it's understandable. Let's go ahead and look at the first of these, which is a godly heart knows how to make up all wants in God himself. A godly heart knows how to make up all wants in God himself. And the word wants here, you, you, you may know, but the word wants here means things that are lacking, things that we, uh, are, that we feel deficient, um, needs that are unmet, essentially. And last time we talked about living on the dew of God's blessing, which is the surprising supplies that he offers to us when we suffer external afflictions. Uh, we talked about how when we're afflicted, when we're dealing with scarcity, the little bit that we have is sweetened by God because of things like it's a gift of his love. So even if we only have a little, we have kind of uh, meager subsistence, at least we know it's a gift of love from our Heavenly Father, and that makes it sweet, or things of that nature. So we looked at how the fact that things come from God makes them better and actually makes them more, uh, more uh, able to make us content. But here we're not, this is a related point, but we're not looking so much at God's blessings as God himself. That the content heart can draw its satisfaction from God himself. And this is what Burroughs says, this indeed is an excellent art to be able to draw from God what one had before in the creature. And so often, this is the case, we don't even realize that we are drawing life and sustenance and satisfaction from things until those things are taken from us or threatened. And then we start realizing like, oh, I was really depending on this thing as a source of my happiness and contentment. And what Burroughs is saying is uh, part of the art of contentment is learning how to wean, to be weaned from those things to God himself. Um, and so he says, like, look, God is the fountain from which all these things are streaming. So we really, what really matters isn't so much the, the downstream stream, it's the, the fountain, God himself. We learn to go to the source. So we have Lamentations 3.24. And does, can anyone, what's Lamentations about? Just in very, we haven't gotten here an Old Testament survey yet, but just what's the deal going on in Lamentations? I have, uh, 
expressing his sorrow a lot. Yeah. And and throwing in beautiful statements like the one right before you. Yeah, so Jeremiah is in deep sorrow over the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in the, by Babylon. So this is really dark times in terms of external afflictions. This is very kind of end of the world kind of times for the place and the people that he's, that he's in. But here's what he says in the midst of that sorrow and lamentation. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So there's this, this grabbing hold of saying, my portion, my supply, my inheritance, even though the world is crumbling around, uh, all around me, my supply, my portion is the Lord and Saul, hope in him. That's the kind of thing that Burroughs is talking about here. Now, um, a couple weeks ago, we heard about one of the foundations of contentment in God is his own aseity or self-sufficiency. Remember we mentioned this in the, in the introduction? This is the fountain of our contentment. So God reveals himself in that burning bush scene to Moses. This is one of the most important moments of self-disclosure we ever get from God. And what does he say about himself? What does he name himself? The I am. The great I am. So he is saying, I am. What's your name? Who should I tell you sent? Who should I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Which there's a lot packed in there. But one of the things is that God's existence is the most... A fundamental thing. It's the bedrock of uh, all reality that his existence is and that everything else derives from him. No one else can say, I am. It's, a, it's something that only God himself can say and it's his name. So he himself is uh, fully dependent and satisfied in himself. In eternity, he, it was the, the, he's called in first to the blessed God. He's the happy, self-sufficient God and that's from being the I am. And so, uh, we who are united to him in Christ can find full satisfaction in him. But I want to ask you, how does this work? Why is it that knowing the doctrine of aseity, God's self-sufficiency, how can that actually uh, point our way to making up our wants in God? So you might know this truth about God himself. How does that teach us to be content in him? If he's like that, um, if that's who God is, then, and I'm probably missing this, but if he's like that, then all of his perfections are that way. In other words, what he is, his perfections are. So if, if he's unchanging, or if he's, I am, and the definition of um, ultimate existence is immutability. The fact that he doesn't change is the same or it derives is derived from that, if that makes sense. It's probably about as clear as... I'm not sure I understand your point, brother. I'm sorry. Uh, well, it's just saying if God is... is absolutely God if he mm-hmm. existence ultimately then his perfections um, his attributes are also because they're not just part of him but mm-hmm. him himself yeah they are not going to be altered there in in a sense existence yeah from God that it is so so you're saying God's perfections are because attributes. That is who he is. And none of that changes. That's all self-existent. And so is that part of so there's there's no there's no change in who God is. So if we're depending on him, he's the same for us. Is that kind of what you're what you're getting at with that? Yeah, that's very, very true. No, I, I it's it's all right, it's all right. So thanks for sharing that, Smokey. Any other thoughts on connecting the dots here? Because that's very true. Are there any other ways we could connect the dots? God being self-sufficient and us being God-sufficient, essentially. Yeah, Matt. I mean, since his power is derived from himself, I mean, he's all-powerful and he can control, I mean, just uh, 
demonstrates that everything is un in his hand. Mm -hmm. uh, everything's under control. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So very, very true. So it's it, it's it's definitely the bedrock of his sovereign rule over his creation. The, the the distinction between the creator and the creation is so vast that God God's got it. In other words, like whatever we're fretting about, that's a very good implication of his his being self sufficient and and so independent of of creation. He's not needy and going. I hope things work out. Uh, getting something from from creation. Yeah, John. Christ's point too in Matthew and he says God you know knows each sparrow and yeah. every hair on your head yeah. will you not provide yeah and that's the exact point that exactly so he goes he has such control over all the details of the world in, in Matthew 6 making that point the sparrows and the grass won't he provide for you yes very very yeah Wilson um, I, I think what he is and what he has implies that those are things that then we should want Mm -hmm. And so he's the only one that's able to say, I'm the source of all of this. Yeah. Come to me to find it. Yeah. Get it. So, yeah, so you're saying he, uh, the doctrine of self-sufficiency shows he is a fountain of what we really need. And he invites us to come to him that way. And, yeah, I mean, think about this. Uh, the, the greater being is the harder to please, usually, right? The harder to satisfy. <laughs> It's harder to satisfy a king than a, than a peasant, right? So God, the highest being of all, is fully supplied in himself. He goes, I have all I need in me. And then we can look at him and go, is there anything lacking for me in him? Could there be anything that I need that isn't found in him if he himself finds all he needs in himself? It's amazing to think about. God is God doesn't need anything but himself. He delights to create and to share himself with creation, but he has all he needs. So to kind of draw your point on more both. Yeah. So these are all true. These are all true connections about God. But basically what we need to know is um, we can look at his eternal self-contentment in himself and say, wow, I guess we can be content in him as well. And we can pray like Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There can be this really firm foundation for us speaking to God that way and seeing God that way. Um, and sometimes, now we've been careful to say, not every affliction is God's discipline. Not every affliction is, uh, let me put it this way, not every affliction is a uh, consequence of our sin. Uh, every every affliction is, I guess you'd say, disciplinary in the sense that it's meant by God to do good for us, um, to shape us into likeness of His Son. But not every affliction is a consequence of our sin. But sometimes it is, and sometimes God is using afflictions because we have been getting too much of our life and sustenance and joy from the creatures, and He means to draw again, draw our hearts back to getting it from Him instead. So Burroughs uses the, the, the illustration of you've got a plumbing system. Um, and I don't know what their plumbing looked like back then, but I think this would still work, I guess. I don't know what their plumbing would be either, to be honest. But uh, you've got a system of pipes under a certain amount of pressure. If you turn on the faucet that you want to get water from and the pressure is low, one thing that might be happening is that other faucets are on. And you need to go turn those off so that the pressure can be concentrated in the one outlet that you have. So there can be like too much going out in too many directions. And so when you, you, you shut them all off so that it's all coming in from the one you want. And it's, he's saying, it's, God can do that with us. Our hearts are going out to all these different places for our satisfaction, and God might be turning off those valves so that we, we can once again have a, a, a stronger uh, stream of getting our supply from God himself. And you see this um, really throughout the prophets. I have a couple of, we won't look there, but I have a couple of examples in, the, in your notes. Jeremiah 3, 12 to 14, and Hosea 2, 5 to 7. This is a familiar pattern where God sees his people going, looking out to other gods, looking out to, to, to creaturely things for their satisfaction, and saying, I'm going to afflict you to teach you to look back at me. That's often the pattern of his, of his work in the prophets, and they're explaining this. You're going to be afflicted to turn over, so to, to draw your hearts back away from those other things. And sometimes God afflicts us for that reason. Um, and this is for our good. It, it's, I love how Bros points out the Revelation 21 
Um, what's going on in Revelation 21? Anyone remember the context there? What's what's the deal? Where are we at in the Bible storyline here? It's the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the eternal state we're, we're heading toward. Uh, this is the consummation of God's redemptive, redemptive work in Christ. And uh, he points out how in this heavenly, this, this city coming down, God is, uh, it's a very, uh, the all-sufficiency of God is very much on display. So would someone read Revelation 21 verses 22 to 23? Yeah, no, please. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Uh, and verse 23? Yeah. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Thank you. So he's saying, oh, there's all these things that don't have, don't have to be there because God himself does that. He, he, there's no temple because God's with us. There's no sun, there's no moon because God's light supplies it. And Burroughs says, look, this, that is the happiness of heaven to have God be all in all. It's just a picture of God himself being the supply of things that we're used to getting from created things. Um, and so, so this is part of what, where we're headed. This is part of the glory of of. The new creation is God more and more being the one that we depend on. So any uh, thoughts, questions, pushback on that point? The godly heart finds, learns to make up its wants in God himself. Okay, let's look at the next one of these. A Christian heart, number this 12, next. A Christian heart is able to make up all his outward wants of creature comforts from what he finds in himself. So we just heard the Christian makes up his wants in in God, and then now it says he makes up his wants from what he finds in himself. So this point follows right on the heels of the last one. We we talked about finding what we need in God. But, But what this is saying is the source of that supply is internal, not external. Um... We make up the outward deficiencies that we have with peace in our own consciences. And this is basically like, where are we tapped into God himself? This is kind of the question. Where are we tapped into God himself? And it's something that happens internally. It's something that he's supplying us in our souls. Um, and like, can I have two readers? One for Isaiah 26, verse 3, and one for Philippians 4, 7. So Josh... Uh, Isaiah 26, 3, and then Jason, would you read Philippians 4, 7? We've looked at Philippians. We've been at Philippians 4 a lot. Our key text was verses 11 to 13. And we looked at verse 7 also, but we're going to read that one again. So listen to where where peace is happening uh, in these texts. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Okay. Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you. So we heard about the mind. We heard about the heart and the mind. These are people who are relying on God, relying on Christ, uh, specifically in, in Philippians 4, and saying that that's where you find peace. You're plugged into God by faith, I would put it that way. That's where the mind is connected to and the heart is connected to God. And that's where you find the peace of God or in Isaiah, perfect peace. Um, so the inner person is the location where God's perfect supply meets the believer. Um, and again, he, he says this is, uh, this is a sort of preview of eternity. We have a little bit of heaven in our souls as we commune with God here. Um, he says the, the heaven is in the soul of a godly man. Um, those who have no good cheer at home are inclined to go out to friends. But those whose tables are well furnished would as soon stay at home. So a carnal man has little contentment in his own spirit. Saying a, a person who knows, who is trusting in the Lord, who knows God, in his own soul, it's a good place to be. It's like a person who at home, you have a good family life. You have, you, you know, things are good at home. You have enough food. You have a pleasant family to be with. Those kinds of people like being at home. 
But if your home is a is a bad place to be, like if you don't have, you know, you don't, your home is disorganized and poorly set up, or you don't have anything there, or there's discord among the people there, you're going to want to spend more of your time away from home. He's saying the the Christian knows the peace of God in his heart and is content to just be in his own skin, so to speak. I would put it that way. Whereas the non-believer has to go out and find external things to kind of fill the silence, fill the void. And I would say, even compared to Burroughs' day, it's, we live in an incredibly noisy world where there, is so many, there are so many ways to fill our lives with noise and data coming from the outside. Things that we're looking at with our eyes, things we're listening to with our ears, many of which are fine in themselves and even helpful. But we get very little time just being in the, kind of in the room of our own soul, don't we? Um, it, can, it can actually be days and days that go by where we're doing very little just being ourselves in, in, in the quiet. And I would even ask you, how do you feel about quiet moments of just abiding with your own soul? If you ever even have times like that. Um, the discontent, find that to be a torment. That's a horrible time if you're discontent. Uh, there's nothing good. It's, again, it's an empty room. It's a, it's a dreary place. Those whose hearts are, are disquiet, who, who aren't uh, feasting on the Lord's goodness, they just don't like that state. They want to go out and find something else to fill the, fill the silence. Um, there's this kind of busyness that's trying to, uh, trying to mask discontentment. Um, but are you, even when external enjoyments fade away or even fail, are you comfortable being just being in your own skin, just moments of silence, just what's going on in your heart. That'd be something to even, maybe if, if you don't even, like some of us may not even ever be in that situation. Uh, or maybe you are in that situation sometimes and you go, I don't like the thoughts that keep coming up. It just keeps being really like dark and, and turbulent and uh, discontent. But that could be a good measuring stick of to the degree to which we're actually communing with God and the degree to which we are actually drawing from his, his sufficiency. Um, like, is he keeping you in perfect peace as your mind is stayed on him? I mean, that, that, that Isaiah 26.3, like, is that your experience? Um, so anyway, I'm not asking for an- answers from you on that. That's a very personal question, but I just something to challenge you maybe over this week to just get some moments of silence where there's nothing external happening, um, no external stimulus, and, and just see how, how it's going. Are you happy? with God? Are you happy to be yourself? Or what are the things that sort of flood that, that void? Does that make sense? It's kind of a kind of a vague point, but... Okay. Yes, but I'm just kind of sitting here without mm-hmm. stimulus. No. You, you, you mean if you don't have anything, you, you want to have a text of scripture to be meditating on? Scripture I can think about. Mm-hmm. Those can be lovely times. Mm-hmm. Just kind of trying to cultivate some environment without any substance. It's not. I'm just not capable of it. Yeah, and I'm definitely not talking about like Eastern meditation where you're just trying to completely empty your mind of everything. I'm just more mean bring ourselves into a place of quietness from external things so we can actually pay attention to what's happening in our souls. Does, does, that, does that make sense? And I don't know if that helps at all. But yeah, meditating on scripture very much fits into that. But also just, I think sometimes we're not even able to assess what's going on in our hearts because we're so, we're not even, we don't even stop and ask, like, how am I doing? What's, what's going on in my thoughts? How am I feeling? So it's that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not talking about trying to pursue some kind of emptiness of, of, of mind or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure you addressed this, but um, yeah, just what you just said made me think that, yeah, I think because we're constantly looking, I think we are looking for distraction mm-hmm. because we don't really want to face that sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that quiet time. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to keep myself busy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely, it's... It, it can be the strategy of a discontented heart to keep the noise up that very much. Yeah. And the world is eager to, to uh, conspire. Yeah, yeah, conspire with us to, to do that. 
And one thing I, I sometimes I marvel reading the Psalms and I go, the, the psalmist is describing the state of his heart. And I just go like, wow, the psalmist really like knows how he feels. <laughs> and sometimes that's a foreign thought. I'm like, I don't even, I'm not even paying attention to, I'm just like reacting to stuff. You know what I mean? So anyway, just that, just the awareness of what, what state am I and what state do I go to God? What do I bring to God? And where, and what, what, what do I need from him? What, where, what are the pressure points? What are the areas where I'm struggling? Um, so, yeah. There's some wisdom there. Um, the next point is number 13. A gracious heart gets contentment from the covenant that God has made with him. So we're kind of building, right? It, we get contentment from God himself. The location is in our inner person as we're trusting in him. And then the really the means that he supplies it is the covenant, which is this is our new covenant we have in Christ. Uh, so it's not just in general terms, God makes us content. It, God doesn't, doesn't uh, avail himself to make everybody content, absolutely. He, is, uh, he is, belongs to us through the covenant we have with him in Christ, and it's by that means that he is our God and we are his people. Um. And so the cool thing is when we're in this covenant relationship and we have God as our God, this is the sort of the, the connection by which he is our all. He is our, he is our supply. Um, and he, Burroughs breaks this down and looks first at the covenant in general. So uh, basically just the fact that we are God's people. I'd put it this way. First of all, you just, there's so much contentment to be had just from the fact that we are God's people. We belong to him. Let alone, and we're going to look in a moment about the specific promises that are ours in Christ. And there's a lot there to be gained, but he says, not even that yet, not even the specific promises, just the fact that it, through this new covenant of Christ, we belong to God. And he has drawn near to us and made us his own. And he quotes from 2 Samuel 23.5. This is David late in life, and he's reflecting on the, now here's a real, uh, here's a Bible question for you scholars. Which covenant did God make with David? The Davidic covenant. Yeah, yeah. Some of you are in Old Testament survey. So God had drawn near to David and made a covenant with him, which is very much in line with the new covenant. It's they're, they're organically related. So this is not like a wholly different thing. David's reflection on God's covenant love for him is very much vocabulary we can share. But he says in 2 Samuel 23, 5, He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? So Burroughs draws out a few observations. First is he says that the covenant is everlasting. Second, it is ordered and secure. And third, it's the basis for all of David's help and fulfillment of his desires. And so, um, the, so the Lord, so this is late in life. This is earlier, he's reflecting on earlier when God had made this covenant with him. But he's looking at his life and going, this is the anchor of my life. This is the certainty of God's care for me that it won't fade, it won't go away. And this is, you know, Burroughs even points out, um, it's not victory in war. It's not all these external things that a king might say, ah, some of my desire and some of my sort of security is found in this. Uh, as he, and he definitely had some dark times of failure after the Lord made a covenant with him. But he can look at back of his life and say, the one thing I really have, the one bedrock foundation thing I really have is, is the Lord's eternal covenant with me. And that is all my desire and all my help. And that's my security. Um, and again, as those who have the new covenant in Christ, we can, we can speak the same way. The real typical kind of covenant language is we see it in Jeremiah 31, 33, where the new covenant is being promised where God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Um, and so we can, we can talk like David. We can say, I have this everlasting covenant ordered and secure. This is, a, this is all my help and my desire. So how does this look when we're actually striving for contentment? Um, even when the conditions of my life externally or the world externally are out of order and they feel chaotic and out of control, those are the moments that can give rise especially to discontentment and worry but at least the the, the 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 christian can say at least i have an eternal covenant with god there's this tether like at least i have this uh, this amazing uh foundation yeah blake uh, i just had a quick comment mm -hmm. in regards to contentment yeah this particular part um 
I think if we're honest, is either I mean whether we're believers or unbelievers, if we're honest, we can admit to the fact that sometimes discontentment is actually fun and enjoyable mm-hmm. in a in a secular or worldly way. Mm-hmm. Like we can have fun with a new book or a mm-hmm. new friend or a new uh, a new idea or even something in scripture. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to remember that 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 kind of thing where we're being content in the world and creating things yeah. uh, does not satisfy and also it can lead to covetousness yeah. and so covetousness is a sin like I think it says in the Ten Commandments oh, yeah. shall not covet yeah. and the thing is those created things we might be content in are fun and new and exciting, yeah. but they don't satisfy like God satisfies. Yeah, and Very so true. I think that when we're content in God um, and we're happy and joyous in Him, that not only pleases God but it glorifies Him mm-hmm. because we're placing our contentment in Him, and we're a lot better off to do that. Yeah, that's a good word, Blake. That we talked about those who find their life and satisfaction outside God Himself in creature. Often there's just this this kind of uh, skipping from new thing to new thing that's just there's this like wave of excitement you're trying to ride and it can be very fun it can be very like we all I mean we all know I think that just the thrill of getting a new nice thing that we like or if, if that's you know material thing or if there's a relate you know whatever we're using to fill the gaps if it's relational or if it's achievement there's these little rewards that are very nice in the moment and some of them I mean a lot of them are, are gifts from God to enjoy legitimately but you're totally right. There's this sort of superficial enjoyment that we're driving in the moment, but really inside our hearts are they're not satisfied uh, the way that God wants us and the way that only God Himself can. Like the Psalm seventy three twenty five, whom whom have I in heaven uh, but you and on earth I desire nothing besides you. Sometimes God has to use afflictions to get us off of that, to realize like, oh, this really isn't my, my joy. This is actually a bubble that <laughs> has to pop, you know. And then we go, we can we can be like the psalmist and say, oh, actually, really, it's just God. It's really only God that's going to make me happy. So, yeah, and good work. It's very true. Um, so the, the Burroughs writes, you know, to, like you can look in your heart. I find, he says, I find disorder in my heart, in my family, but the everlasting covenant is ordered in all things, yes, and it is sure. So everything's swirling around you. Everything seems to sort. He goes, God has made a covenant with me. It's ordered. It's secure. And, and that, is a, that is a foundation to build on. Um, it's like an insurance policy that he, he says, you know, you have an insurance policy and say some of your insured goods are lost to you. Uh, he didn't use this, but let's say you have a car. You have, an, you have a car that's insured and you get in a wreck and it's totaled. You lose that car. You lost something. But what the insurance company is bound to replace it to, to make it up to you. And so he says, in a way, um, this is what the covenant is like an insurance policy. This is all my help and all my desire. It's not saying, oh, all these specific things in my life are going to be fine and nothing's going to go wrong. But it's saying, this is sort of the, the insurance policy I have that I'm going to be okay because God is my God. That's the security of God's covenant. Um, I love this quote. He says, Have you sucked the sweetness from the covenant and contentment to your hearts in sad conditions? So, you know, we tend to think of God drawing near to us in the covenant of Christ. We think of salvation and going, yes, it's the new, you know, we're going to do the Lord's table this evening. And what does he say with the cup? This is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about the cross and the blood that sprinkles us and cleanses us. So we think in terms of salvation with the new covenant. But he says, have you also drawn the riches of the new covenant for your contentment? The fact that God has drawn near and made us his own. There's a lot to be extracted there uh, for our contentment. And uh, so I want to ask you all, what does this look like when it's happening in our hearts? When, um, when we are learning to draw our satisfaction and contentment from um, the the covenant we have in Christ with God, knowing God is our God. What what does this look like in terms of the things you're telling yourself, even internally? And you might consider the particular concrete contentment challenge that I that I uh, asked you to identify earlier. What might this look like in your heart? 
Yeah, Christy. Uh, it's kind of convicting because the the good gifts that God give us, gives us, sometimes we're more excited about. So then when we like recognize that we need to be thankful for these other things, mm-hmm. it's like, man, I was so much more excited about the good gift mm-hmm. than just being content with, like, I have eternal life. I, mm-hmm. I have hope mm-hmm. in this life. So I've, I've recognized that in myself recently. And for like... Yeah. I'd be so excited about Oh, yeah. So just noticing what it, like, how much more excited we can get over the creaturely things than going, well, I never really feel that way about eternal life. Yeah, very good. So just recognizing the, the responses of our heart to these things can be good conviction and what God might use to, to, to correct us in these things. Yeah. Any other thoughts of what this might look like? Yeah, sure. It's to look different when we're in a good place in our mm-hmm. life, whether rather than when we're real low, say mm-hmm. we've lost everything. So we tend to um, just think differently about um, being content because, mm-hmm. when, like you know, when the rich man thing. When you have everything going on for you, mm-hmm. what's there to be discontent about? Yeah, you know. But when things are all in disarray. We tend to cry out to God, don't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it's, I mean, we all wish it weren't true, but it is. That often, there's, often we're not doing this unless we're being afflicted. And there are so many good reasons God in his wisdom chooses to ordain trials and affliction. But this is one of them, is to get us, yeah, back to that rich young ruler kind of thing, to, to strip away the self, self-sufficiency, self-dependence, and get us to the place where we go, wow, I get Jesus. I get to know God this way, and and that becomes so sweet, right? Yeah, Jason. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, it, it a lot of it tends to look like a reorientation of what matters. I mean, like just the time honored promise of Romans eight twenty eight. Mm-hmm. He works all things together for our good. But that good, obviously, being the conformity to the image of Christ, that's only good news if you prioritize conformity to the image of Christ mm-hmm. over anything you might be suffering in the moment. Yeah. And so it's constantly a reorientation as to what actually matters and what doesn't matter. Yes, yes. So the promise of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, and the good is 8.29, to make us like Jesus, right? And so it's, that promise only has teeth in our hearts if being like Jesus is better than the things that the all things that we're going through maybe losing it's a very good point so it challenges us to ask what really matters um, and to, t- to talk to ourselves about that you know it's a self-talk and go oh my soul you're loving the wrong things <laughs> you know what really matters is that God belongs to me sometimes you just find in times where we're stressed or we're anxious or feeling whatever kind of discontentment there can just be this peace that floods our soul, just remembering, just this orientation. I belong to God. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, at least I know I know God. Everything's going to be okay. And this can be kind of a really vague feeling, but it's a sense of God's got me. You know, like this this fretting that I'm 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 drifting into is it doesn't have to happen. God's got me. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that we might apply this to ourselves. Um, but so that's the power of the covenant in general but the second dimension he looks at is the the power of individual promises that are ours because of the covenant we have in christ so because we belong to christ we have all these promises somewhere whatever condition you're in somewhere in the bible there is some promise of god that can really meet you and and be a a massive blessing to you and uh, he goes on a long thing Um, we won't go we won't go too much into it but uh, and but this is good to think about a little bit. Just some of the promises is tricky because some of the promises uh, are in terms that we go, wait, is this true? Is this? Can I really expect this? Like he looks at um, Psalm ninety one, verses f- five and six, and I think verse seven actually is really helpful for that too. Where it's it's a time of, he's talking about plague and how God's going to guard you from plague. Um, you will not, uh, I'm reading 5 to 7 of Psalm 91. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Okay, Christian, New Covenant Christian, is that promise yours? You're not going to get plagued, you're not going to get shot with an arrow. I can almost promise you you're not going to get shot with an arrow. <laughs> you can claim that one. <laughs> but who knows? But uh, 
What do we do with these? So do we say, oh, that was just for the, uh, the for Israel? They're not. It's not ours. Or, yeah, Aaron. Well, I, I thought I think the first part of the verse. I think mm-hmm. we could grab onto. You will not fear. Okay. I remember when the world was just in just panic. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think if we we kind of felt a little bit more, not quite so panicked about it, maybe. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, because, because we know that that you know even if if we died, there was a security there. But yes, I, I don't know. That's. No, that's actually, uh, you're getting at one of Burroughs' answers, which is, you know, these, out, these things outwardly may happen to us, but the, because of God's hand, his covenant care, and his commitment to us, the evil has been removed from the external affliction. And, and I think what he's getting at is that. It's like saying, we, it's, the thing may happen to us, but it won't happen to us like it happens to everyone else, because God is caring for us in it. And God is sovereignly using it for good to good ends. And there's this, we can go, yeah, the thing itself may happen to me, but God's going to make it different in terms of what it actually means because I'm his. Yeah, John. Uh, reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Before the, they're thrown in the furnace, their answer is like, well, our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, he's still yeah. <laughs> the God of the universe. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's, that's a really interesting Thing that they say, isn't it? He'll, we, we're sure he'll save us, and if he doesn't, yeah. But um, is there any now? Is there any sense in which we can claim like bodily health protection from these things? Yeah. Well, I think ultimately it's looking toward eternal life. Yeah. So not just focusing on the protection we have in the here and now. You know, if either shot by an arrow or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You have eternal life to look forward to, and that's where our ultimate promise has been already made. Yeah, that's that's a very good answer too. That um, it, you have to remember the old covenant in which these promises are given. The the terms of obedience and disobedience was material blessings, material curses. You remember De- Deuteronomy twenty eight, right? If you obey me, it's going to be going to have a lot of babies. You're going to have fertile fields. You know, you're going to no no pestilence, no war. If you disobey me, all that will be reversed. And a lot of that is actually really a type of what we look at in a more eternal sense, that the, 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 the Bible storyline would point us to eternity as the ultimate fulfillment of those things. Or we go, in this life, nah, there's going to be afflictions, there's going to be, we do not claim protection from diseases because we, we have faith or because we belong to God. But ultimately, all the forces of death and, and uh, illness and all these things will be put away and we'll be free from them in, in the resurrection. So it is literally and fully true for us in a certain sense, even if not completely today. Yeah, Jason. And there's one more sense in which you can you know, kind of claim that, and that's the sense that insofar as those sorts of things are consequences of sin, and insofar as we are loving the Lord and following him, there should be a general lessening compared to the, you know, the average <clears throat> sinner. Yeah, so some outward afflictions are direct results of sin. And so this is kind of the Proverbs thing. Like there are certain ways that certain afflictions we will be guarded from generally because um, we're, we're living for the Lord. So there's certain kind of consequences of sin that won't come back on our heads the way that they would if, if we were living carnally. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, so anyway, this is helpful just to think through. Basically, look, he's saying, Christian, if you think about it rightly... If you know how to take them, the whole Bible is full of promises from God to you and, uh, and promises to care for you because you belong to him in the covenant of Christ. So he says, a Christian heart by reasoning out of the word comes to satisfy his soul in the midst of such a heavy hand of God and in such a distressed condition as that. Now, carnal hearts, that means non-believers, do not find that power in the word, that healing virtue that is in it. And um, so not only Psalm, this Psalm 91, he looks at others like Isaiah 43, 2, the waters will not overwhelm you. It's like, well, Christians can drown. He's not saying that you can't drown, but he's saying there's a sense in which God has got you. And again, if nothing else, the resurrection and eternal life. But even their sense of if you have to go through these things, they won't be, they won't be a, um, the same kind of despair and evil that they would be if you were without God. Uh, or Joshua 1.5, which we heard about in, in the Hebrews 13, where I preached several weeks back, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, he's saying, that's ours too. A Hebrews author takes it from Joshua and says, this is yours, Christian. Um, 
He says, it will be made good to all the saints now, one way or another, either literally or in some other way. And, uh, and then again, the, the resurrection is really the giant backstop behind all of it. Like nothing will get past that one. The resurrection is really our, 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 our firmest hope that, that whatever we walk through, it's making us like Christ and preparing us for glory in the resurrection. So, uh, boy, this, is a, this really shapes the way we read the Bible, especially when we're struggling with discontentment, that we can find promises. Uh, we don't just see a bunch of disconnected stories, but we see God addressing us. We see God promising himself to us, calming our hearts with all these things. Again, we have to interpret them rightly based on where we are in Scripture, but um, he says it's like going through a field, or like a, if you own a property and you're driving through it, and you see, like, that pond is mine, you know, that hill is mine, you know. You can, like, look at Scripture that way. This belongs to me because I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm adopted into God's family. A uh, non-believer does not read the Bible that way. So, um, just let's think about a few promises of Scripture that might be particularly helpful for contentment. What are some things? We, we heard, I mean, we, we heard about some already I, I mentioned from... Uh, that Burroughs suggested. What are some other promises from Scripture that we might want in our back pocket in the, the battle for contentment? Yeah, sure. Mine, mine are, tend to go to the revelation, um, it will wipe away all my tears. And so when, when, when mm. all else seems hopeless for mm. crying out loud, we have something to look forward to. The wipe away all our tears. Yeah, the revelation the, 21. The, there will be a day. This is just a blink of an eye, mm-hmm. this suffering we're going through. Yeah. We can do it. We can mm-hmm. get through it. Yeah. So just looking at the promises of, of heaven and the eternal yeah. state and these things will will pass, and yeah, you're, you're actually anticipating a text we're going to look at in the next point. But Second Corinthians four uh, sixteen, this sixteen and seventeen, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's one of the promise. What are others? Yeah. Psalm one nineteen one fourteen. Uh-huh. You are my hiding place and my shield. Mm. To know that God is so strong enough and big enough that mm. when we are in those moments of despair or hurt that we can hide in him yeah. and he will protect us and comfort us and be there for us forever unwavering mm. and um, that was one of the first promises I cling to yeah. as a Christian that that verse actually helped me realize that yeah. God is God and Jesus is my Lord and Savior that's, that's, that's awesome because often when we're battling discontentment it can feel very exposed and vulnerable. That's like kind of what we're, what's going on in our hearts often is the world is such a rough place and we're feeling very often just very exposed and vulnerable. So the imagery of God as a hiding place and a shield of protection can be very rich for us knowing him that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he'll sustain you. Yeah, he will sustain you as you cast that burden. And do you do it just once and then it's all good? <laughs> or do you have to, you have to, yeah, yeah. Just whatever, yeah. Just just throw up a little prayer and then go. No, it's often to like you got to keep it up, right? Keep casting that care on the Lord, but He keeps sustaining, doesn't He? That's that's an awesome promise. Yeah, yeah. Chris. Mm-hmm. You know, through those times, like He He's with us. Is that walking through the valley, the shadow of death? Yeah. Yeah. So, however dark it, it's whatever we're going through, however dark it gets, He's He's leading us through it as a shepherd who cares for His sheep. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome promise. Yeah, Chin Wei. I think um, a uh, number of verses that talk about the preservation of our faith, including mm. John 10, where you know Christ says, um, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father was given to me is greater than all, no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Jesus promising, I won't let you go. My Father won't let you go. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Gary. Well, this is your last one. Yeah, yeah it isn't. So better be good, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> but something that's really special to me, mm-hmm. you know, there in my life some things have been pretty bad. And this was a time when the disciples had said, many of them that they had sent out, they said, This is a difficult statement, and then you come down. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, 
you don't want to go away also, do you? So tough times, people didn't. We get faced sometimes with something pretty mm -hmm. tough. But then now uh, this is from Peter, not from Christ, mm -hmm. but yet something that has helped me yeah. to hang in there. It says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a big promise that yes. is helping me. And, yeah. you know, not necessarily promise, not Jesus didn't say it. Well, it's the Holy Spirit. I like it. Promising you and inspiring this scripture that Jesus' words are eternal life. And that there's nowhere else to go but away from Jesus. Yeah, that's that's been a powerful verse for me as well. Yeah. So thank you. That, that's good. I appreciate you all sharing. And there's so many others that we could look to. But learn learn the landscape of how this battle is going to look in your own heart, and learn the texts of Scripture that you're going to need to be armed with. And uh, as Smokey said, um, prayer, meditation. These aren't just things to say. These are things to pray and to stew on. And, and pray that they'll actually really sh reshape your heart and your mind as you're um, walking through these, these afflictions. Um, let's look at number 14. The Christian has contentment by realizing the glorious things of heaven that belong to him. And this, a lot of these points partially overlap. This one definitely overlaps with, with what we've just seen. But uh, I mentioned, and Sherry alluded to, 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So uh, according to this text, why can believers not lose heart when their outer selves, when our outer selves seem to be wasting away? It's momentary, yeah. That's just knowing that this it can feel like this will never end, and going this is like sure this is a blip on the time scale of eternity, yeah. <coughs> what else? There's something about what's happening to us now in the midst of it, and there's something about the future. Just doing something greater than we understand and what appears in the immediate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's doing something far greater than, than the eyes can see. And he actually goes on to talk about the things that we see are temporary, temporary, they're passing, the things that are unseen are eternal. And he calls those the, a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we can't see that, can we? So we see the afflictions and they feel heavy and they feel lengthy. But in comparison to the things we can't see that he's preparing for us that actually these are are leading to that i, I love how he says um for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us the weight of glory so the affliction somehow shapes that weight of glory for us um so it's not wasted not if it's wasted also he talks about we're being renewed day by day i think this this is kind of the the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. This, we're being sanctified. We're being made more like Christ um, day by day. So it's not only the future that we'll see benefits, but it's even now we are being changed and actually, I would say, prepared for that weight of glory in being more like Christ. So uh, our destiny and our trajectory make a massive difference. And, and it's kind of like Anne said, momentary. Like if if we were, if, if this life were all we had and then we were just going to be annihilated when we die, that would be very discouraging, to say the least, regarding walking through afflictions and losses, if this is all we had. But where we're headed makes a huge difference. We can go, oh, this is a short journey compared, you know, my backpack is really heavy, but it's a short journey uh, to the place I'm going, and it'll, it'll be well worth it. So where, where he's promised us we're headed really shapes our experience. Abura says, a godly man in the midst of the waves and storms that he meets with can see the glory of heaven before him and so contents himself. He's kind of talking about like being on a ship in a storm, but you're like, I can see the, the land, like the lighthouse, and the, things, the waves are turbulent and everything, but I can see that we're almost there after a long journey. It, it makes a massive difference in um, your ability to keep going. So uh, meditate on heaven. That's a good just takeaway. Think about our eternal inheritance. We Again, because of the noise of... The things that we see and hear around us, I find I very seldom spend any real time doing that. But boy, is it does it put things in perspective to just meditate on 
Spend five minutes thinking about heaven. <laughs> if you've never done that, I highly recommend it. And uh, it can make you go, oh, my problems really just, you know, the, the, they're not as overwhelming as, as I thought. Any thoughts on that one or just other, other reflections or questions? Yes, here. Um, and just also living in the present because sometimes if we focus even too hard on heaven, we can look at it as more almost painful to be in the present, but mm-hmm. meditating maybe on the fact that the Holy Spirit is who you know helps you and comforts you and will help you finish the race. Mm-hmm. You know that Christ is always making intercession for you. Yeah. And focusing that it's, it's not all on your earthly endurance, mm-hmm. but that you have a comforter. Yeah. A, you know, greater is he that, than the one who lives in the world. So he's helping you to finish that race. Yeah. So it's not all future, the, the goods. It's kind of like last week's sermon, right? He says, I'll make, it, I'll make it up. Whatever you give up for the gospel, I'll make it up a hundredfold in this life and eternal life to come. So there's plenty of, and you're kind of drawing back to, uh, on the point about promises. There's so many riches we have in the covenant of Christ, so many promises, Christ interceding for us, the Holy Spirit indwelling. There's just an endless supply of things to draw today, draw comfort and encouragement from, even as we know, yet it'll be even better. So, so much better as to completely overwhelm the, the sorrows that we, that we experience. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron. Just also to remember that the Lord is near. Mm-hmm. It's never this difficult thing uh, yeah. found. You know, yeah. it's like I can always just turn. Yeah. Like at the moment. Yeah. Just stop, take my eyes off, and and, and look look on the Lord. And it's, it's easy. I don't know why we just don't do it all. The time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the Lord is near, and it's another promise that we can. Hold. Yeah, and, and that the Lord's near. Remember that, and that beautifully segues into our last point, which is. A godly man has contentment by opening and letting out his heart to God. So, some, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm dismayed sometimes. I think about when I walk through times of discontentment and worry. And, and I go, man, I had all these mental activity, but how much of that was prayer? <laughs> you know, How much of that was actually taking the thing to God? And sometimes it's shockingly little. But remember, God is near. Remember, he hears. And, um, and, and Burroughs talks about when a non-believer is discontented and there's a storm inside his heart, Often that'll just find outlet in what? What kind of outlets will a non-believer find when that's the pressure's building up in his or her soul? Entertain they might just distract themselves. There could be anger, just angry outbursts, various kinds of complaints. The world is full. I mean, it just seems like the world's becoming a very angry place. <laughs> There's just angry outbursts, angry complaints, bitter, uh, abusive words toward others, or worse. Uh, but he says the gracious heart has another outlet. The, the outlet is we take these things to the Lord, just like Michelle said in Psalm 55, that we, uh, when we entrust our cares to him, he, uh, he'll take them. Uh, I think of, again, back to Philippians 4, 6-7. There's another promise to hold on to. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So open up that valve. Don't, don't bottle it up. Open up that valve. Take it to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is how Paul could say a few verses later, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, is that he has learned, go to God with everything, and he will he'll mysteriously and powerfully meet you with his peace. And uh, as I said before, it's not like a one-time thing. You just pray, and, and then he's not promising that you just say a little prayer incantation, and it'll go away. This is a, this, we're walking through the dark valley, the valley of death. It's a conversation, right? It's just an ongoing rolling that carol into God. And then we find our soul will kind of build up again with anxiety and we just roll it back onto him again. And he'll, he'll get us through with amazing uh, supernatural peace. So um, any objections to that? Praying? <laughs> Anyone want to challenge that? Point? No. <laughs> any thoughts or just other, other reflections on that? Remember prayer. Remember the. Remember to cast your burdens on the Lord. Yeah, mercy. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Turn it toward him. Turn our hearts toward him, and, and yeah, he even helps us in the yeah. Mm-hmm. That it's a de- that it's a delight to him. That he's it smells good to him when we're praying these things. That's an amazing image. That it's the the incense rising up to heaven, the prayers of the saints. Yeah, which doesn't sense doesn't seem to to us always that it smells very good to God, right? But it's the fact that we're. We're resting in Him. We're seeking Him. That's what's precious to Him. Yeah, very good. And He gives us His Spirit to help in our prayers. So, yeah, um, this is an this is an amazing resource. It almost feels silly to say, like, pray. You know, it's it's good. <laughs> it's good. Uh, but it's an amazing outlet for for uh, for finding contentment in the Lord. So, um, this brings us to the end of our fifteen aspects of mystery. The final exam. You'll have to know them all. No. Uh, <laughs> But uh, lots of lots of tools, lots of riches for us to draw from, and just to really understand the true nature of the battle. I think that's what a lot of this mystery topic is for us: is just really understanding the landscape. What does it look like to find contentment in the Lord? And um, now I asked you to come up with a concrete situation in your life where contentment was a challenge. So I want to ask you now, in light of these five things we've seen, give a moment of thought to. Which of these might um, might be especially powerful for you in that in that challenge, and how might you how might you draw from this? How might you actually find contentment from that? So, is it uh, maybe, uh, for instance, you sought soothing and contentment from outside things rather than God Himself, and you realize I need to, I need to watch out for the outside things. I need to re- re- go back to communing with the Lord and, and try to find what I need in Him. Uh, or maybe you were thinking of God generically, but you weren't thinking very specifically about He's your God. You have a covenant in Christ with Him, and so be specific about His commitment to you. Or maybe, yeah, you just were prayerless. You just realized, I didn't, I stressed, I planned, I worried, I didn't pray. Um, so remember, He's near. So just give a give a moment of thought to um, what that could look like for you. Maybe even write down some notes if you're doing that. And I'll give you I'll give you a second, and then we'll close in prayer. Our God, we praise you that you have poured out every spiritual blessing on us in Christ and that even in our material needs, you are so abundant with us. You so somehow, even in surprising ways, you meet our needs. And God, we, we thank you that you sometimes afflict us so that we can see that you are the one we need. We pray that you would train our hearts in the school of Christ, not to draw life from the creatures, but from the creator who has drawn near in covenant with us. Thank you for these things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.